So good morning. Here we are, almost at the end of our time together. Almost. So it's not over yet. And we have a few hours still of transition time, which can be a very powerful time to practice the awakening factor and the Brahmavihara factor of equanimity. Because uh, endings of any kind can be uh, quite a challenge, and, but also they can be quite revealing of our default patterns, the default ways that we tend to relate to things. So one very common response to the ending of a retreat is something like, oh, great, well, it's almost over, near enough is good enough, I think I'll just skip the last couple of sessions and have a nice nap and then go for a long walk. A second very common response might be, come on, come on, why isn't it over already? I can't wait for that first cup of real coffee and to see my partner again and play with my dog and do some serious TV binge-watching. And a third very common response is, oh no, I'm going to have to leave soon. It's gone so fast and I haven't even made any progress. I should have tried harder and it's going to be hell out there. As soon as I get back to work, all of this is going to fall apart. So we can see our default tendencies, our default reactivity, often quite clearly at the endings of this retreat. And in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about meditation and post-meditation, which points us to the understanding that no matter what circumstances we're in, we can bring awareness to what's going on. Because whether you're on retreat or in daily life, on one level, the experience is exactly the same. A sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought. That's all that's ever going on. So sometimes when people talk about the so-called real world out there, I wonder what they're talking about because sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and thoughts are just as real in here as they are out there. So we can practice just accepting our experiences with equanimity moment to moment just as we have been doing through this whole retreat. And this is not to deny that the conditions on retreat are fairly specialized and they're designed to be more supportive of mindfulness than the everyday conditions that most people have in their lives. So it is likely that our mindfulness and concentration won't have quite the same strength as they do on retreat. But it's very important not to fall into the common trap of self-judgment if we don't experience the same stability and clarity back in our daily lives. Because the conditions are different, so the experiences will be different also. So just in terms of uh, maintaining a daily practice at home, I think this is one of the common traps that people fall into, that they want their daily life meditation to be as deep, as strong and clear and stable as their practice on retreat. But because the conditions are different, for most people this isn't so likely. So rather than judging your daily life practice in terms of clarity and concentration, 
It can be more helpful to use a template such as the 10 parami, the 10 qualities uh, that can really be strengthened in daily life. So these are um, generosity and renunciation and wisdom and energy and patience and truthfulness and resolve and kindness and equanimity and this is another example of when you miss one it's usually the one that you most need to practice so i got nine out of ten i'll have to come back to you on that Uh, i said renunciation uh kindness compassion is one no i got that i did get kindness compassion crowdsourcing (laughs) yes kindness compassion are one It'll come back to me later. I didn't say honesty. That's not technically one. Integrity, you could say. Oh, it's ethics. Ethics. Thank you, Sila. Phew. Okay, so when we look at our meditation in daily life, even if you are sitting there for half an hour thinking about your grocery list or whose turn it is to pick up the kids or whatever, the fact that you stayed there for half an hour, you develop patience. You develop determination. You develop truthfulness or integrity. You could say it's an act of generosity to yourself. You developed equanimity, some capacity to just accept this is how it is. So looking at our practice in daily life more in these terms rather than in terms of concentration and clarity is, I think, for most people, more realistic. And it can be very helpful to look at our relationship to the practice because, again, what often happens is we leave a retreat and we're all inspired and we think, yes, this is going to be um, how it's going to be for the um, rest of my life. And then the momentum of daily life takes hold. And it's a little bit like any other kind of relationship any kind of human relationship, we need to keep putting energy and effort into it if it's going to be sustainable. So if we think of the Dharma as a friend, you know, if you had a friend and you said, wow, I'm really enjoying your company and I really want to spend time with you and let's let's do breakfast every morning. And then the first morning, oh, look, sorry, I've got a deadline at work. Can we, can we do it tomorrow instead? And then the next morning, actually, I'm really busy right now. How about we have a weekend of really quality time? And then the weekend comes and it's like, mm, sorry, something's come up with the family. You know, can we can we make it next weekend? And so on and so on. Eventually, that friendship would just fade away. And in some ways, the Dharma is like that and that we do need to keep bringing attention to it and putting energy into it. But in other ways, fortunately, the Dharma is the kind of friend that even if you don't see them for 10 years and you give them a call, they're happy to reconnect. So just to think, as with any other kind of relationship, how much time and energy am I putting into it to help it be sustainable? And in a similar way, you know, often people tend to do a retreat and then think, oh, that was good, you know, I should do another one sometime, and then six months goes by, or two years go by, oh, yeah, I meant to do another retreat, I'll see what's happening. And there can be a very sort of laissez-faire, casual relationship to the practice. 
But if we really want to make progress and get the best results, it can be helpful to think more strategically about it and to actually set ourselves a kind of curriculum and to think in terms of uh, goals to orient towards. So if you're, say you're relatively new to practice, you've just done a four-day retreat now, you might want to think about doing a seven-day or a nine-day within the next year or perhaps six months. If you've done a few nine- or ten-day retreats, perhaps in a couple of years you work towards a month long. Or even to think more further out than that, within five years, can I aim towards doing a two-month or a three-month? And it's more and more necessary to plan in advance these days because even apart from getting leave from work and taking time out of your responsibilities, most retreats, uh, longer retreats and most retreats with good teachers tend to book up years in advance. So it's pay, it pays to be on the mailing lists of centers that you're interested in or teachers that you're interested in so that you know when they release their schedules, you know what's coming up and you can work towards it. Because if you just decide, oh, next month I'd like to do a retreat, pretty unlikely that you'll actually find something that's available so it's thinking in terms of setting a, a kind of a program for yourself over the next one to two to five years can help you stay on track. And in a similar way, uh, it can be helpful to keep a practice journal, just a, a little notebook by your sitting cushion. And at the end of your sittings, just to jot down a couple of sentences. It doesn't have to be a huge project just a couple of sentences about what you did and what you noticed. You know, just those questions, what was happening in the body, the heart, mind, what was your relationship to it? And I've done this with uh, quite a few students that I work with um, through video calls overseas and just reporting in every month, they're able to look back over their practice journal and see shifts that otherwise may have just kind of gone by without them even recognizing so this can help strengthen the confidence that things do happen. Because uh, when it's just moment by moment or day by day, we don't necessarily notice. But if we have a point of reference in the form of a practice journal, we might start to see actually there is, pra there is progress. And in a similar way, to really let in those times when you notice that there's been some kind of shift. So just you know, daily life examples, perhaps your boss at work says something to you that's deeply unpleasant and you notice your response and you realize, wow, if he or she had said that thing two years ago, my reaction would have been quite different. But this time, there's something, something has changed. So those kind of things can be written in the practice journal too as so that they become um, kind of resources to strengthen our confidence. And in a similar way, having regular, regular contact with other meditators, with other Dharma practitioners is really important. Because as you all know, and as we've been saying, this practice often is swimming upstream and having the moral support of like-minded people at regular intervals does make a big difference. So 
The Buddha's path is a very holistic one, and it's laid out in terms of what's traditionally known as sila, samadhi, and panya. And sila is our ethical conduct, but it's also our relational practice, how we engage with each other, how we show up in the world. So that's one domain of practice. Samadhi is the calming meditation practices, and then panya is the wisdom and the insight. So the path is actually threefold, and we need to be looking at how are we strengthening each of those three. So connecting with Dharma friends is one way of strengthening the sila, the relational piece of it. And one aspect of that that's often overlooked, rarely talked about, is Dharma service. So just thinking on this retreat, we, we are really relying on volunteers to help support us. So Graham's been wearing the manager hat as well as the teacher hat. And then Jerry and um, Jan and Chris, thank you. All these people who come and help support the retreats. And I know for myself being a manager here that I thought I was coming to offer service. But what I discovered was that I actually received more than I ever could have imagined And that's again, sounds counterintuitive in our mainstream culture, but if you can find opportunities to connect and to offer service and to experience that reciprocal flow of benefit, that's also a very powerful way of strengthening the practice. Anything you'd like to add at this point? Um, 